0: Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. I hope you enjoy learning about the topics of today's episode as much as I did. From a famous costume designer to a singing revolution that led to independence, this episode has it all. Anyway, before we start, here's a little bit of background for those who are listening to this podcast for the first time. Each podcast episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories, and to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's dive into episode 12. Flowers, cheese, costumes, and singing. Social Sciences I first came across this topic that we are going to discuss next when it was briefly mentioned in an article I was reading. While I no longer remember the main topic of the article, the few sentences describing the Estonian singing revolution stuck in my head and I want to talk about it today. Estonia is the northernmost country of three Baltic states located in Europe. To the south of Estonia lie the other two Baltic states, Latvia and Lithuania. Estonia, about the size of New Hampshire and Vermont combined, is home to approximately 1.3 million people. Estonians have lived on their land for between 5,000 to 8,000 years and remained independent until the early 13th century when Germany invaded. Over the next several centuries, the rule of Estonia passed between Germans, Danes, Swedes, and Poles, until eventually landing with Russia in 1721. Following World War I, Estonia briefly regained independence, but unfortunately was not able to hold it for long. On August 23, 1939, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact was signed between Germany's Hitler and Russia's Stalin, effectively dividing up Europe between the two countries and starting World War II. One month later, Stalin delivered an ultimatum to Estonia, telling the country that either they allow Russia to maintain military bases in their country and retain their independence, or Russia would invade with the plan to occupy the country. Estonia, backed into a corner, agreed to the military bases but Stalin did not keep his side of the bargain and in June 1940 the Soviet Union occupied the country once again. Many of Estonia's business and political leaders were executed while other Estonians who were not killed were deported to working camps or to Siberia. Russians were brought into Estonia to dilute their population and Estonia would end up losing a quarter of their population due to the russification of their country. Flying the Estonian flag and speaking the Estonian language became illegal, but despite all this, Estonians never lost their national identity. They fought back using a variety of methods to eventually regain their independence, and one such method has become known as the Singing Revolution. Music has long been a cherished part of Estonian culture and national identity, and in fact the first great song festival, known as La Lupido, was first held in 1869 and has continued to be held regularly since then. This became a cornerstone of the Estonian resistance. The first festival after the Soviet occupation occurred in 1947. Soviets allowed the festival to be held Planning to use it as part of their propaganda with the lyrics of the songs being changed to support Soviet values in history. What the Soviets didn't realize, due to the difficulty of learning the Estonian language, was that the Estonians were able to hide their agenda by using hidden meaning in their words. One such song was composed by Gustav sax who set an old Estonian poem, My Country is My Love, to music and it quickly became the unofficial national anthem, being sung at subsequent festivals as well. While song helped Estonians maintain their national identity, the singing revolution truly took hold in the late 1980s. In 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev became the leader of the Soviet Union and announced new policies, including greater political openness. With these changes, Estonians began to test their limits, starting with a protest over phosphorite mines that the Russians had planned to build in Estonia despite the environmental concerns. The Estonians were successful in their protests and the construction of the mines was stopped. In 1988, three large music festivals took place in Estonia and would become the heart of the revolution. The first, a pop music festival, took place in May where four songs written by Alo Madison, a leader of the independence movement, were highlighted at the festival. One month later in June, Medieval City Days was held where 100,000 Estonians gathered for five nights of singing protest songs. Then on September 11, 1988, a festival was held at the Song Festival grounds outside Tallinn, bringing 300,000 people, or over 20% of the population, to the grounds. Patriotic songs were sung, and many Estonians dressed in full costumes made by their grandparents many years before. That same year, in 1988, the Estonian Sovereignty Declaration was signed, stating Estonian laws were superior to Soviet laws. On August 23, 1989, the 50th anniversary of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, Over one million Estonians joined with their Baltic state neighbors Latvia and Lithuania who were also fighting for their independence from Soviet occupation and held hands. They created a human chain that stretched over 360 miles or 600 kilometers through the country's capitals of Tallinn, Riga, and Vilnius and sang patriotic songs together. On August 20, 1991, Estonians declared their independence from the Soviet Union. The following day, Soviet troops tried to take control of Tallinn TV Tower and several radio stations, but Estonia's Prime Minister sent out a message and unarmed Estonians rose to the occasion, protecting the buildings with their own bodies. The Soviet troops backed off and would soon recognize Estonia's independence. Since the success of The Singing Revolution, the Republic of Estonia has become a member of both the European Union and NATO and in 2011 adopted the euro currency. For those who would like to learn more about The Singing Revolution, a documentary film was made in 2006 called The Singing Revolution and has won several awards including Best Documentary at the 2007 Savannah Film Festival. It also has an 83% rating on the website Rotten Tomatoes. This film can be rented or bought from a variety of websites and has its own website at www.singingrevolution.com, which I will link to on my website. Of note, based on the preview on the website and the review on IMDB, I would recommend parents preview the film before showing to their children due to violence, especially noted in the first 10 minutes. Sports and Entertainment Breakfast at Tiffany's, Sabrina, Samson, and Delilah, and A Place in the Sun were all popular and famous movies of the mid-20th century. They also had one other thing in common, Edith Head as their costume designer, known for her designs ranging from sophisticated simplicity to elaborate flamboyance. Edith Head had a long and historical career in Hollywood as a costume designer, and she did this despite starting her career off in an entirely different direction. Edith Head was born on October 28, 1897 as Edith Claire Posner in San Bernardino, California to Max Posner and Anne Levi. Shortly after her birth, her parents divorced and her mother remarried a mining engineer, Frank Spare, when she was 7 or 8 years old. Because of his job, the family moved a lot in her early years, mostly to mining towns and camps in Arizona, Nevada, and New Mexico. After finishing high school, she attended the University of California, Berkeley, where she received a Bachelor of Arts in Letters and Sciences with honors in French. She then moved to Stanford University, earning a Master's of Arts degree in Romance Languages. Following her graduation, she became a language teacher at Bishop School in La Jolla before moving to the Hollywood School for Girls, where she taught French and also requested to teach art, despite having no formal education in this subject. To help supplement her teaching, she enrolled in night classes at Otis Art Institute and Chenard Art College, where she met her first husband, Charles Head, who was a brother of one of her classmates. They married on July 25, 1923, and she changed her name to Edith Head. The summer of 1923, she found a classified ad for a sketch artist at Paramount Studios. Needing extra money, she used a borrowed portfolio to obtain the position, though Howard Greer, the chief designer at Paramount at the time, realized she had done this and hired her despite it. Edith Head initially worked as a sketch artist before working her way to becoming a costume designer. One of her first memorable designs was Dorothy L'Amour's first sarong in The Jungle Princess, released in 1936. She quickly made a name for herself at the studio and in 1938 became the chief designer at Paramount, the first woman to head a design studio at any major studio. That same year, she divorced her husband, though remained known as Edith Head professionally. In 1940, she remarried to Bill Innan, a famous set designer at Paramount. Her designs started gaining national publicity, including the mink-lined gown she designed for Ginger Rogers in Lady in the Dark, released in 1944. She was the favorite costume designer for the leading female stars of the 1940s and 1950s, including Grace Kelly, Audrey Hepburn, and Elizabeth Taylor, not only for her incredible costumes, but also for her willingness to consult and work in collaboration with the actors. In 1949, the Academy Award for Costume Design was created, and Edith Head would be nominated for the award, 35 times, winning it a record 8 times. Her design style was even noticed by the United States Coast Guard, who asked her to design new uniforms for the Women of the Coast Guard, for which she received a meritorious public service award. She worked for Paramount Studios until 1967, when at 70 years old, she joined Universal Pictures after an invitation from Alfred Hitchcock, who she had worked with when he was at Paramount. She remained there until her death at 83 years old on October 24, 1981, from myelofibrosis myeloid, a rare disease of the bone marrow. Her legend lives on, and in 2003, the United States Postal Service issued a stamp honoring Head as part of a series commemorating behind-the-camera people on movies. She also has a star on Hollywood Boulevard, located at 6504 Hollywood Boulevard. Some people believe that her personal style of two-piece suits, bangs, and large glasses was also the inspiration for Edna Mode in the Pixar movie The Incredibles. If you would like to see the costumes from the movies she worked on, I have links on my website to an L article and an article from The Cut website that have many pictures to view of her fabulous designs. Science and Technology Architecture has always interested me, and at one point in my life, I wanted to become an architect. Now I live out those dreams by carelessly building houses in The Sims. Whenever I travel, my favorite types of pictures to take are of unique architectural designs, and while I have not had the opportunity to see the building we are going to discuss today, you can definitely say it's been uniquely designed. The Lotus Temple is located in New Delhi, India and is one of the eight continental Baha'i houses of worship located around the world that celebrate the Baha'i faith. The temple opened to the public in December 1986 and its unique design brings over 10,000 visitors a day to its 26 acres of land. Canadian architect Arthur Erickson describes this project on the Baha'i House of Worship website as one of the most remarkable achievements of our time, proving that the drive and vision of spirit can achieve miracles. Upon the decision to create a new house of worship in New Delhi, India, the Universal House of Justice, which is the international governing body of the Baha'i Faith, sent out a request to architects worldwide, asking them to submit their designs. At the end of the interviews, Faeribor Saba was chosen to design the House of Worship. Saba was born in Mashhad, Iran, and his dream of becoming an architect started at the age of five when his mother told him stories of the first Baha'i House of Worship in Iran. He finished his schooling completing a master's degree in architecture in 1972 from Tehran University and now lives between Canada and the United States. After being selected as the architect, Saba traveled throughout India to learn more about Indian architecture to help him design the temple. During his travels, he met with an Indian Baha'i friend, Mr. Kamrudan Bhardar, who was the first to mention using the lotus flower as the inspiration to build the temple. In his own words, quoted from the Baha'i House of Worship website, he says on finalizing the design inspiration. The deep respect for the lotus, spontaneously evoked in Indian hearts everywhere and their loving attachment to the sacred flower, convinced me to end my search for further ideas for the design. Saba designed the building to look like a half-open lotus flower floating on water. With the design of the building complete, the truly hard work began as the design had to be converted into geometrical shapes that could be expressed in mathematical equations for structural analysis and to complete the engineering drawings. The geometry to achieve this was so complex it took two and a half years to complete. Saba stayed on as project manager and Flint and Neil Limited, now called COWI, were the consulting structural engineers. Once this was finished, construction began on April 21, 1980 and was completed on December 21, 1986, taking a total of 6 years and 8 months to complete. The temple was constructed by ECC Construction Group. For those who are interested in knowing exactly how the construction was completed, I have linked a PDF called Architectural Blossoming of the Lotus by S. Roy, from the Baha'i House of Worship website to my website at www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. Upon completion, the temple consists of 27 petals or leaves separated into 9 groups of 3 to make a 9-sided circular lotus. The outermost leaves open outward and cover the 9 entrances to the temple. The middle set of leaves open inward and protect the outer halls, while the innermost set of leaves form the main structure that houses the central hall. The lotus was designed so that the entire structure acts like a skylight, so natural light passes through into the interior. The plants or leaves are made of concrete slabs covered by marble that was obtained from Greece before being sent to Italy to be cut to size and shape. Once the marble arrived on site, Carpenters, who had learned the art of marble fixing within a few weeks, completed the work of attaching the marble to the concrete slabs. Because the top of the lotus is half open, a glass and steel skylight was created to protect it from the rain. The central hall, with a 40 meter high ceiling, is located in the center of the lotus and can hold 2,500 people. Its floor is made of marble and there are no pictures, statues, altars, or platforms inside. People of all religions are allowed to worship in the central hall of prayer, but no sermons or ritualistic ceremonies are allowed. On the outside are nine poles representing the floating leaves of the lotus and they also help cool the air that passes over them, which is another unique function of the temple. Because the cost of using air conditioning to keep the temple cool would have been tremendously expensive, it was designed so that natural ventilation could be used. This is how it works, in Saba's own words from the Baha'i House of Worship website. It is based upon the results of smoke tests which were performed in the Imperial College of London on a model of the temple. The results demonstrated that with openings in the basement and at the top, the building would act like a chimney, drawing up warm air from within the hall and expelling it through the top of the dome. Thus, constant drafts of cold air passing over the poles and through the basement flow in the hall and out through the opening at the top. The Lotus Temple and its architect, Saba, have won many awards for its design. One of the biggest was awarded in 2000 when Sabah won the Globe Art Academy 2000 Award for, in quotes, the magnitude of the service of this Taj Mahal of the 20th century in promoting the unity and harmony of people of all nations, religions, and social strata to an extent unsurpassed by any other architectural monument worldwide. Geography and World Culture Cheese! One of my favorite foods to snack on, whether on a cracker, with pretzels, or on its own, so food I always make sure I have in my fridge. Today we are going to talk about a specific type of cheese made in the northern Italian region of Lombardy and Piedmont called Robiola. Robiola, an ancient cheese, is a soft ripened cheese with a texture similar to brie. There are several different types of Robiola cheese, but they are all made with some combination of cows, goats, and or sheep milk. The milk can either be pasteurized or raw. The cheese is believed to get its name from the Latin word rubier, which means ruddy, due to the reddish color in its seasoned rind. The cheese is generally eaten as a table cheese and can be eaten alone or with oil, salt, pepper, honey, or on crackers or bread. The cheese can be found as either mature or fresh cheese. The fresh cheese is ripened for 4-10 to 10 days and the rind may be a light natural bloom or may not be present at all. The body of the cheese is a white to straw yellow color and it is soft and creamy with the flavor ranging from tangy to slightly sour. Mature cheese is ripened longer for 11 or more days which forms a rind that becomes slightly reddish in color and from which the cheese gets its name. It becomes creamier with age, and this is from changes in the protein within the cheese itself. One type of this cheese is called Robiola rocetta, which is produced by Casificio Longa, located in Alta Longa region of Piedmont, Italy. It is made from the combination of pasteurized milk from goat, cow, and sheep. The edible rind is the color of brain coral, while the cheese itself is an off-white, It has a buttery, tangy, nutty taste, with the taste becoming more robust the longer it is aged, which is typically for less than one month. Another popular Robiola cheese is called Latour, also produced by Cassificio dell'Altolonga in Piedmont, Italy. Many cheese aficionados describe it as an earthier, funkier brie. The Latour has a soft, moist, edible rind and is also known as a bloomy rind cheese, which refers to the bloom of good bacteria, which helps create its delicious rind. It also is made of the combination of cow, goat, and sheep's milk, which is then lightly pasteurized at low temperatures, allowing for natural microbes to boost its final flavor. The curds are placed in molds, which are drained under their own weight, which creates a higher moisture, fragile cheese. The cheese is then aged for 10 to 15 days. This cheese, like other Robiolas, are best eaten fresh at room temperature. It can be refrigerated for several weeks, but the flavor will become more robust the longer it is aged. One last type of Robiola that we will discuss today, also produced at Casificio del Longa, is called Robiola Bocina. This cheese is known as a due latte, as it is only produced from two milks, a mixture of sheep and cows. It has a thin, white, edible crust and the longer it ages, the more creamy it becomes. It has a slight buttery taste, a little like mushrooms with a sweet aftertaste. For those interested in trying to make Robiola cheese on their own, I have added a link on my website to a recipe from the New England Cheese Making Supply Company. TODAY'S RANDOM TOPIC For today's random Wikipedia page, we are going to travel to County Clare, Ireland to visit a limestone cave called Dooling Cave, best known for its great stalactite. The cave was first discovered in 1952 by two members of the Craven Pothole Club, a caving club from the Yorkshire Dales. J.M. Dickinson and Brian Varley were with a group of about 12 men, visiting the area the cave was located in, known as the Burren, when they decided to explore a cliff face that the group had found earlier. They noticed that a small stream disappeared underneath a large cliff and the two men followed the water, crawling for approximately 500 meters before reaching the cave's main chamber. According to the Doolin Cave website, the men described the main cave as, in quotes, Scrambling over boulders, we stood speechless in a large chamber of ample width, length, and impressive height. As our lamps circled this great hall, we picked out a gigantic stalactite, certainly over 30 feet in length, the only formation in the chamber and set proudly in the very center. It is really majestic in poised, like the veritable sword of Damocles. With our headlamps inadequately floodlighting this huge formation, we tiptoed, believe it or not, to the bottom of the chamber, not daring to speak lest the vibration of the first voices ever to sound in this hall since the beginning of time should cause it to shatter. In 1990, the land where the cave was located was bought by John and Helen Brown, who after a lot of controversy and court proceedings made it into a show cave, opening to visitors in 2006. An entrance shaft was created of 125 steps leading to the great stalactite. This stalactite, measuring 24 feet or 7.3 meters in length, is the longest free-hanging stalactite in Europe and one of the longest in the world. It is held to the ceiling by a less than 0.3 square meter section of calcite. The site is open to visitors by a 45 to 50 minute guided tour with costs listed on its official website. In an attempt to protect the stalactite, the tours are limited to the number of people they can take. And that concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge. A little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to learn more about topics that you enjoyed today, you can access links to more in-depth articles on my show notes blog post on my website, www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. That's www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. You can also find a sneak peek about next week's episode that will be posted later this week. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at TrivialKnowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. I look forward to our new adventures next week when we will learn about the history of Ike Athens Football Club and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote from Plato's. Knowledge is the food of the soul. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot.